This presentation is from Succeeding in Design 2022, Melbourne. So today, um, and thanks to Meg for the introduction, um, I was going to take you through, I guess, some of the key lessons that I've learnt over my career at NAB in the last five years, um, where I started out as a contractor, um, I joined Simplicit, and then a couple of days client-side out at NAB. Um, so that kind of traditional tra tra trajectory of um, like senior to now a lead, um, but more kind of focusing in the complex environment that I worked in. So I was put into this um, niche subject matter domain around business lending, which then started to come out and was like super complex subject matter, um, a very broad stakeholder group. And they were embarking on this, um, I guess, fairly chunky um, digital transformation that they wanted to do. And I think everyone had these expectations that, oh, yeah, we can smash this out in six months and it's going to be done, no probs. Um, and I think we're now five years into it and I've just rejoined that team. Um, and, yeah, we haven't really changed the dial too much in that area. But um, anyway, we'll get there. So what I wanted to take you through today and kind of reflect on was the big lessons that I learned. The areas today that I'll take you through are going to be more around um, behaviours, risks, and sort of more doing a bit of self-reflection and knowing when to kind of step back and let go a little bit and let things unfold as they happen. But to set the scene of, I guess, the story behind a lot of these lessons, um, I was just kind of cast back to a few years ago and so I was working in the, the business lending domain. I was a senior UXer at that point. We had a team of 12 designers working and we were very much at that point, I guess, with the executive leadership um, that was supporting us. Design was at the, the forefront, like it was um, around this framework and model of customer journeys. So we were like bang smack there at the front, making great um, outcomes, delivering lots of runs on the board, everything was going really well. And then restructure happened um, as large organisations do and our executive leadership left and the new lot came in. And basically it kind of felt like overnight it was like this black ops type of migration of that whole project team kind of moved from one building site to another building site. And it was almost like you'd go out to lunch and come back and be like, oh, that person's gone. They're, okay, where have they gone now? Um, and then there was this name of this executive getting spun around and going like, have you met this guy? Where is he? And we're like, mm, I don't know, he's pretty scary. And then we moved down there. And so I moved to the new building site and essentially off the bat, the first kind of conversation that we got brought into with this um, kind of sponsor of the program was that, um, oh, you're UX. UX is marketing. I just need you to sell the product. And I was like, oh, my God, hackles went up straight away. I was like, okay, this is how we're starting. Cool. Um, and then within two weeks, he had slashed the design team from 12 designers down to four. And we're still expected to deliver on all of the outcomes. Um, but his main message was, just give me the wires. Just design the screens. Don't ask questions. Just do it. And I was like, okay, shit. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah. It's kind of just giving me like triggers going back <laughs> to those days. Um, so, like I said, he saw UX as marketing and he came from a tech background. So he'd come over from, he was brought out of retirement to be brought back in to lead this program. And he was very much about it's technology first. And he he spun up this wonderful technology function, which was excellent. And I loved it because we could deliver really quickly. But he kind of disregarded the first half of the process, which is actually designing and shaping what you need to deliver. 
So anyway, a lot of the lessons that I'm going to um, reflect on today have come from working in that environment with that particular stakeholder. He shall remain nameless, um, kind of like Voldemort. I did nickname him the Peacock. Um, if anyone knows that kind of like David Attenborough, you see the Peacock come and do this thing. That, that was him in a nutshell. Um, but that's as much as I'll leave it. So the first lesson there, unpacking the behaviours of yourself and your stakeholders. So for me, I was coming into work every day, I was banging my head against all day, I'm like, why am I doing this? Like I'm constantly fighting and butting heads with this sponsor. And so at the time, my mentor and my coach um, at NAB had said, look, there's a Women in Leadership program, I think you should go do that. You need to kind of just distance yourself a little bit, have a different focus. All right, cool, whatever, do that. The first activity I did in that leadership program was a DISC profile assessment. Has anyone done a DISC profile? Yeah, cool. Did you have light bulb moments when you did that? Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so a little quick kind of 101 in DISC. Um, it's essentially, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a very hack job at this, so don't kind of quote me as a specialist. It's like a, a basic kind of personality assessment framework. And it's not to say that you are locked into these boxes of everything. You can flex in and out and be high in certain areas, low in certain areas. And what this did for me was did the questionnaire, filled it out, and out came my results. And I was like, oh, that's, that's me on a page. That's exactly who I am. Um, so for me, I'm very much sitting in that um, high C, high S space. So I'm that bottom half of the quadrant. Give me spreadsheets, columns, grids, order, process. Love it so much. Like I will plan a holiday in an Excel spreadsheet. Love it. Yeah, Max, you're all about it. Um, but what I did after I did this assessment, and I was like, ah, oh, you know what? That sponsor I'm butting heads with, he's a high D. And I guess by kind of like osmosis, and this is kind of a happy accident, I didn't realise it until I put this together, he was a big supporter of Donald Trump. And I was like, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there you go. That kind of answered all my questions. <laughs> Rosie, I love it. Um, so... Yeah, straight away, I was like, okay, I know, I know what's going on here now. And immediately, I could take emotion out of it. I'm like, this is not a personal attack. This is just how he shows up and this is how I show up. So we're just different and that's okay. Um, it's difficult, but it's okay. So I guess off the back of doing this disc profile assessment, unpacking behaviours, for me, it really identified what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? Like what's that environment to set me up to thrive in and what kind of like literally just demotivates me and I switch off. I then also started in like true C brain, kind of sat back and was going like, mm, hi I, hi S, bit of a D, very much a D, um, and went around that way. Um, but what it then did was like any kind of thing where you do a discovery phase on design projects is then I could start tailoring my communication style to the different people with their different personality traits. So as an example with a high D stakeholder, he was very much give me dot points, tell me about the actions, the outcomes, what do you need from me? So I had to very much change my style from like I was all about getting into the why and verbatim, so breaking it down into like here's the research outcome. He could give less than, I won't swear, he could care less. Um, but I had to tailor it and change it. Uh, what it also did was it helped identify the gaps in my own internal network. So very much what you'll find is you're in your comfort zone, you're going to surround yourself with the same people. So I very much had a lot of the S's and the C's going around. Had quite a few people in my network who were in that I space as well, but the D's, not very much. I had one, and he was a positive high D type of influence. 
Um, and he was a great sort of sounding board to go like, this message is just not getting through, what do I do? And so he could become that sounding board for me. Um, but then also I was able to lean upon to go like, hey, you know what, I can't actually put that hat on of a high D today because it's just it's too much for me. Could you maybe step in and help me present this? Um, super, super helpful. Lesson two. So, um, and I'm so glad you brought it up before around risks. Um, one thing I've had to learn, particularly moving into that role of becoming a design leader and leading a team and working with more of the higher level senior stakeholders is unpacking their impacts of their decisions and bringing risk into the conversation. So again, same sort of time space with this story, but this is more focused on say the product managers and the product owners that I was working with. And a lot of it was having to go there to make a lot of trade-off calls, like any product owner does, there's a lot of things on the table. And so what I had to understand was going like, well, actually, if you make that decision, this is the on-flow impact of that decision. But what I also had to do as a design leader, and even just as a person, anyone working on a team, is to start looking at the broader ecosystem that I'm working in. So looking at risk itself, now, for me, risk has many definitions. Um, depending on the industry that you work in or the teams that you're a part of, um, it takes on many faces. For me, these are just kind of the big examples that I've had to work in. Um, I guess the ones that I've unpacked a lot more over the years and the ones I just want to touch on quickly is this first one there around performance risk. Like anybody, um, wherever you work, you've got a, a performance scorecard or you've got KPIs or OKRs that you have to stack up against the end of the year. That maybe consciously or unconsciously can influence the decisions that you make in your work. So that's something that I guess if you talk about it and you're trying to liaise with product owners and trying to get them to kind of make the right call and take on your recommendations, they're also going to be probably weighing up going, hang on, that scorecard that I've got, I'm on the hook for this amount of financial benefit. Mm, that's not really going to drive me in that direction. Okay, I'm going to ignore it. Financial services, we are a heavily governed industry by regulatory bodies um, and, and legal policies. So a lot of that can influence decisions as well. Sometimes you could have an initiative that comes in and it's very much, this has come from the bodies, um, we just have to do it. So there's no, no time for like the best ultimate user experience possible. We just need to get something quick and dirty out the door. Technology, like I'm hopefully most of in the room have heard of tech debt. Um, it's just, yeah, wonderful concept. But what I've started to do is leverage that concept and framework of tech debt and reframe it as experience debt. And that's that last item there that I started to bring in to um, highlight the impacts of decisions that my product owners in particular were making was around, hey, you know if you cut the scope on this initiative, not only are you going to incur tech debt, but there's experience debt that you're going to incur as well. And like anything, you're going to have to pay that back later. Um, and so that would be kind of highlighting going like, if we did have success metrics outlined at the start, many times we didn't, um, we would then go, hey, you know what, um, if you make that call, that's not going to be that metric that you thought you were going to realise at the end of the project. So what I've learned as part of my design practice and particularly kind of um, leading design teams is more looking to do my own kind of discovery of the stakeholders I work with. I'll do like a racy framework to kind of identify who are the key players in the space. But then I start to kind of just through conversations, I'm actually known as the Alexa or the Siri in my team because I just will go find random information, um, is I start to go and find out like, what are they on the hook for? What are these other risks that are at play in their world? Um, because as much as we would love um, UX to be their sole focus, it's not. Um, there's a lot of other things at play. What I did though, though, was to 
take that intangible concept of experience debt and make it tangible by introducing a design debt register. So similar to how um, technology engineers would use it, I would log experience debt. So we could say, hey, we went off, we did the user research, here's the recommendations, we've designed it this way, and you've decided to go against that. Cool, no worries, I'm gonna log it. And as soon as you attach their name to something, oof, geez, changes the conversation. Um, so I would start going, all right, cool, that's, you're the decision maker, this is the decision you've made, here's the impact of that decision, and then also, here's also how you should remediate it. Then we could feed that back into further backlog prioritization sessions down the line around going like, hey, you know how you kind of scope five features out? You've got to kind of bring those back in again. So it really helps making it tangible. Um, and that last one there, engaging a risk SME. So depending on the organisation that you work with or the industry that you're a part of, um, I know in the larger uh, industry, so I guess financial services, insurance, um, energy retailers, all that sort of stuff, you should have a risk partner um, that you can tap on the shoulder. Bring them into those initial briefings with your product owners because they are going to be the SME of risk. So they'll be able to call out going like, hey, they haven't told you about X, Y, Z risks, but this is what's also at play. And then you can start to bring them along to like you've started shaping up concepts and go, hey, I'm just going to walk you through this. Do you reckon this is going to tick the boxes? And what you start to do is you change the conversation about making risk that kind of critical sign-off at the end of the project, which usually sparks manual processes, PowerPoint, spreadsheets, all that kind of jazz. So then embedding risk compliance controls into the user experience. And what you can then do is sell that value back to your stakeholders to go, hey, you know what? You know how you had six risk red flags against that um, initiative? We've mitigated those. They're now embedded into the design. There's no further work to be done. Massive, massive value prop for product owners. And the last lesson here, uh, yeah, sometimes you can do the greatest job possible, like you have ticked all the boxes, you have put the best foot forward, made the greatest recommendations, dot pointed every, it's amazing. And then you still get that, no, not gonna do it. Um, the story behind this lesson was that particular sponsor that joined the program of work. He already came in to lead this program with his predefined direction that he wanted to take. Whether it aligned up to the rest of the organization or not, he did not care. Um, so the first thing we were delivering was this new uh, platform experience to um, our internal facing colleagues. And they had already had an existing solution that had a fixed navigation. Didn't work, didn't support the job that they did because the nature of their work was um, flexible. It was sort of right information, right time. So they could jump in, do a task, come back, do another task. It wasn't a linear kind of stage gate process. This stakeholder was like, no, it has to be one way, same way, linear process. I am not unlocking that navigation. And I was like, oh my God, like I literally have all of the research, I colour coded it, I gave them all the verbatim, no, not going to do it. And I had to very much step away and just go, oh my God, I am had to like walk away, go for a very big long walk and a bit of retail therapy to not kind of blow up <laughs> at this guy. Um, but what happened off the back of that was, oh, that one was that I went and spoke to like my mentor again and I was just like, this guy, honestly, I don't know how much I can like reframe this. And he was like, but you're not accountable for this at the end of the day. It's on him. So if this goes wrong, that's on him, not you. You've done your job. You've got it all documented. Just take a break, step away. Like that decision's made. 
And I guess that leads to that second point there of like you cannot influence a decision that's already made. As much as you will try, and trust me, I had tried. Um, I It was just me that I was beating up and I was literally, I think, on the verge of a nervous breakdown probably on reflection of this. Um, and I just had to go like, all right, whatever, done. But then I got that glorious moment at the end of this where I went away on holiday for a few weeks, I came back, they released it, and the initial feedback that came back was, oh, yeah, uh, this is crap. I'm not going to use it. Why am I going to use a new platform? I'm just going to go back to my old ways. I'm standing there at my desk working, and then the sponsor came over, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and he's like, you were right. I was wrong. We'll unlock the navigation as part of the next release. Oh my god! But a little bit of also, uh, did that actually just happen? Like what? And for me, it was that told you so moment where I was like, oh my god, I've done it! Like he's actually listened to me. And what that then meant was the conversation changed from like, just give me the wires, just do the designs, to hey, can you come along to these strategy sessions to help us influence the direction? And it helped me elevate my design team to not be those order takers, the wireframe monkeys becoming more of those like we've actually got a wealth of knowledge here in this team we can actually help you and partner with you and shape it up um so it totally changed and that's when this sort of love hate became more of a love relationship because i'm like oh this guy's listened like it took a long way to get there but i got there so i guess if anything to take away from these lessons that i've learned and shared with you today um number one do a disc profile assessment um they're free your pre-fine mind, it'll be up, come up from Tony Robbins. Um, it's okay, same sort of framework, you'll get an answer. It's literally the greatest light bulb moment that you'll have. And it's not to say that this is going to be you forever. It's just a point in time. But it helps you identify that this is where I'm at right now. So when I'm having those difficult conversations, what spaces do I need to lean into more or who else do I need to call upon for help? As a whole approach to you as a designer and maybe moving into becoming more of a design leader, show up how you want to operate as if this job was your business. That's probably the one greatest bit of advice I got given from um, that other positive high D stakeholder that I worked with was that he's like, Jen, this is your design team. If I'm coming to you as if this was an agency, how do you want to be like known for? What is it that you want to be realized for? What what is it that you want to like be remembered for? And he goes, and if it disagrees, then that's fine. This is your business. And lastly there, I wish I could say that this was like the happy ending. You implement this stuff and the world's going to change overnight. It doesn't. Um, it is a hard slog. You do have to hustle to get there, but it is so well worth it. And I think when you can reframe it and take personal emotion out of it and focus it more as design as a practice, design can be a partner. I want to work with you rather than butting heads and making these sort of personal conflicts. It would transform your mindset and your outlook on how to approach these difficult parts of your career. That's it. Thank you.